0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this
1: is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pell Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Where on Earth to Start with Earth. Conspiracy Bookshelf. Moina and Samuel Mathers. And Rise of Skywalker.
0: It's the critical moment in the heist of a lifetime, but things have gone sideways. Bullets
1: are coming from all directions, so you need to think and act quickly. Find your friends. Keep your head down. And don't tip your hand. Never Bring a Knife is a social deduction game with less talking and more shooting. For our friends at Atlas Games. In Never Bring a Knife, each player has a secret role, cop or criminal. Pay attention to figure out who's on your team, then work together to take down the opposition.
0: When the first player falls, their whole team loses
1: and the other team wins. Never Bring a Knife is fast, it's action-packed, and it has duffel bags full of cash. Actual duffel bags full of cash not included. It's
0: also available in
1: friendly local game stores and online starting Friday, January 17th. Stop in and pick up your copy, or go to atlas-games.com slash never bring a knife or follow the link in the show notes because guns and money always make game night more fun.
0: The rattle of dice and the thunk of miniatures and the new vinyl edition of uh, the Matiel record that we're using as a gatefold cover in this ultra modern edition of the gaming hut. uh, Tell us that, Hey, I already said it. We're in the gaming hut. I'm not used to saying it. I'm not usually the one who throws this. But the reason I'm throwing it is because beloved Patreon backer, Nicola Wilson, has a question for you, Ken, related to a thing you always say. And it it starts out by agreeing with you. So we're not going to have to begin with premise rejection this time around. Best kind of starting. Nicola says, Ken has sold me on starting with Earth. So I'm looking for some suggestions for fun Earth starting points for genres of gaming especially fantasy gaming, we all know and love? What times and places do you suggest investigating if I want to play something like Lies of Locke Lamora, or aside from Elizabethan London, or something like the Conan movie or the Dark Sun DD setting? And uh, there's more questions to come, but uh, uh, let's start with those. Uh, Ken, I have some general ideas on the sorts of earthy settings that people uh, dig, but I bet you have specifics.
1: I do. Um, Beginning with the lies of Locke Lamora question, the city is very clearly based on Venice. Uh, The cover art, even, in the first edition is St. Mark's. So if you, for some reason, didn't want to start with Elizabethan London, which, by the way, is a great place to start, uh, I would say starting with uh, 16th century Venice is another great one. There's uh, even more corruption. The weather is better. The food is better. The art is better. Uh it's it's just a better setting all the way along uh, literally the term cloak and dagger is invented to describe the kind of bad behavior people are getting up to during the 16th century in Venice and to a lesser extent Milan and other places like that. But Venice is perfect. It's, it's exciting. There's lots of material on it. It's a geographically constrained area, which is proper for urban adventure role-playing. And there's lots of uh, competing families to hire you to do dirt to somebody else. So it's a, it's a good place for sort of thieves and assassins, urban adventuring. Um, the Conan movie, obviously, Robert E. Howard based it vaguely on uh, the the setting of the world any time from, say, the late Bronze Age, when you have the actual historical Cimmerian's pouring south into civilized, uh, Mediterranean lands all the way through one could argue the, uh, very, uh, tail end of late antiquity where you have the Ostrogoths likewise pouring down out of literally the same piece of territory into the same civilized Mediterranean lands you'd think would have learned by now. But there they are, always <laughs> south of the barbarians. Nothing they can do about it.
0: Yeah. You'd, you'd think they would just fool the barbarians by moving north of them. But the problem with that is. Then you wind
1: up north. Nobody wants that. Exactly. Yeah, then you're living in Poland.
0: Yeah, you have a nice warm place where you live, and that uh, makes you uh, slow and easily conquered by people who want your nice warm place. Exactly. um, So, climactic conditions uh, aside, uh, I guess the next question then, uh, in fact, the next question actually is, alternatively, what are some fascinating and underappreciated times and places in real history, and what kind of game... Are they crying out to have played in them? And I guess the thing about underappreciated times and places is that those will then be less familiar to your players. Um, and one, I think uh, I would argue one of the great uh, qualities of an Earth-like setting, one of the reasons you're doing that is not just to have something that's complicated and full of detail, but also something that one hopes is reasonably accessible to the player. So I would say, for example, look at periods where there's lots of movies to point to. Uh, You can assign your players reading, but uh, they might not do the reading. Uh, You might have some better chance of getting them to to watch a a movie or better yet clips from a movie that you can show them uh, or clips on YouTube or what have you. And uh, uh, so the more uh, images and things that you can pull up Uh, to to show them the better so that argues in favor of uh, familiarity what does uh what unfamiliar things do you have in mind ken
1: um the unfamiliar uh again you're it's less unfamiliar than something you just made up whole cloth because as you say accessibility and uh prior interest is the reason you set things on earth in the first place but earth is big there's been lots of stuff happen and you might have a vague understanding of say scotland but if you dive into the details of scottish history circa the era of king macbeth uh it's much different than the play makes you think uh there's all manner of exciting stuff going on to begin with there's vikings which probably no one mentioned um so you have a lot of different elements that you can introduce despite it being a familiar setting in the sense of it's scotland or you can go all the way to the uh generally completely alien from a Western audience and you can go into, say, the Aztec Empire, which is very well documented and very, very strange and alien, and uh will uh sate your Tecumel Jones pretty nicely. Um you can uh depending on your your players, they may be more familiar with uh, imperial japan and so you can go to royal korea which combines the advantage of having lots of movies set in it and also being completely unfamiliar to most westerners and also being just as full of machinations and intrigue and problem children as any western court of the same period so you have uh, lots of possibilities uh with korea um, i would also say that there's no, nothing wrong with doing a deep dive into areas that you think you understand pretty well. When I ran my unknown armies game, which was set in the American West, I discovered tons of things. And I am, I'm not quite Dr. Cowboy, but I'm pretty familiar with what was going on in the West. But when I set the uh, adventure in the Johnson County War, it turns out there is a lot of real estate conspiracy behind the Johnson County War. There are crooks. <laughs> in Santa Fe <laughs> doing crooked well, things. Scooby Doo has long since taught us that everything is a real estate conspiracy. Everything is is a is a real estate scam waiting to happen exactly. And there's all manner of neat stuff going on and you just do any kind of and it's not even that deep a dive. I'm not saying academic history. I'm saying read one biography and you're going to discover more things than you thought were already present. And it you know, if you were already interested in say Billy the Kid or um uh, whoever reading that one biography will give you lots of, of new information. So even if something is totally familiar, it seems completely familiar and played out and well done. And you're like, world war two, how can we learn anything new about world war two? Well, uh, there was just a book the other day that documented the depth and breadth of drug use methamphetamines, mostly in the Wehrmacht. And it's like, well, now I have a great new world war two story. I can do fricking 24 hour party people, in the Wehrmacht, if I wanted to, and, and have, you know, stories of, of drug use and manic behavior Uh, that seems more like a, like a, like a LARP maybe than it does a a role-playing game. But you you see what I mean? Uh, there's, there's all manner of possibilities that you can introduce. And even if you're introducing, uh, a World War II game and you're doing standard old monster fighting in World War II, now you can take all the drug monsters from the sixties fictions and put them in because the Nazis are all tweakers and that's fun.
0: And, uh, in general, I think you want to ask yourself some questions about what period you're looking at and whether it will work in a role-playing context. Um, For example, one of the questions is how much freedom of action do uh, not necessarily ordinary people because you're playing extraordinary people and you're playing uh, uh, powerful people often on the fringes of society who then perhaps work their way uh, into uh, uh, the echelons of power or perhaps stay on, on the margins. But there has to be a world. Uh, a, a period where there is freedom of action, and to the extent there isn't, you might want to allied that out a bit. So, for example, uh, you know, D and D famously takes the medieval period, which is a a time of uh, low personal freedom, and makes it sort of more wild westy uh, with uh, uh, you know, groovy armor and stuff. And so, uh, you want to make sure that the authorities do not have too much control, or at least that there is room for uh mercenaries and uh and, and other ne'er-do-wells to sort of exist and have power and have a room to breathe because you don't want the players having a turtle all the time worrying about getting you know busted by the by the king's watch and so um often a period in history that the golden age is just beginning to turn is is a good one because the players i think also want to have an environment where they can go around and shop for stuff. And, you know, they're not necessarily all covered in mud all the time. And there's in- interesting levels of society to, to go and deal with and things happening. And, you know, maybe a nice safe bar where they can hang out. So you don't uh, often think want utter chaos, but you want just enough chaos to make people who solve problems with swords and magic spells uh, become
1: uh, important to uh, to the way at least our
0: fake uh, fantastic history
1: works. Right. And even then, uh, in real history, it's not until the middle of the 19th century that you start having anything like a professional police force. So, as long as the person you stabbed was probably a necromancer or you hide the body, you're probably going to get away with it. And even just that little tiny relaxing of GM Fiat, which is again natural to virtually all games, is not even super unrealistic in anything except you know, a modern day uh, totalitarian society. If you're playing an adventure in Stalin's Russia, yeah, part of the point is you do have to dodge omnipresent surveillance and super brutal and omnipresent police um, and people who will hunt you down if you murder someone without Stalin say so. <laughs> or various say so. But that's part of the challenge and that's why you said let's play in Stalin's Russia as opposed to Pilsudski's Poland, which is just next door, is still a dictatorship, but does not have the same degree of um uh of vast uh downward enforcement at the at the local level or at the uh social circle level that would uh that would uh, disrupt your your gaming. I mean again, if you think of all the games that have taken place in Victorian London which did have a civil society and a police force and actually relatively few murders But you just pretend you're like, oh, this is the one that they didn't get. Or this is in the world of magic where the authorities don't even know there is a a challenge. And so they don't investigate it. That's part of it is that player characters are also often engaged in a social fight that does not register on the the authorities. Uh, If you are dueling to determine who's the the greatest um, uh, necromancer in England, probably the Scotland Yard doesn't even know what's going on unless you get really excited about body snatching. And again, if you look at history throughout the 18th century, body snatching was like, was like Coke. It was illegal, but everyone did it and no one ever got dragged in except for a couple of Irishmen. So it's basically how, uh, how much do you want to screw down on um, uh, making your players look over their shoulders? How much fun is that? For the game versus you know just um, uh, stabbing and casting spells,
0: right? And and in eras where there's relatively low personal freedom, there are a few people who have enormous uh, personal power, and you make the player characters those people.
1: So right, or the trusted um, uh, sword arms of those people.
0: Yeah. So if you're doing you know a one of the periods of of the samurai period in Japan where the shogun actually you know, has control of things, and that's, well, first of all, not all of them, uh, then you make them, you know, other powerful samurai, and, you know, the, the peasants
1: have no freedom, but, but you're not the peasants. Right. You're doing something other than raising a handful of rice every day.
0: Right. Uh, which, you know, mostly you are in, in every game, so that's not a, a, an issue either. Um, mm-hmm. I think you're looking, however, for a period where there's lots of stuff going on, where there's a cool... Uh, city, which of course Ed, Edo does in a samurai game, London, that we've already mentioned. And uh, I think it's uh, harder to, as a GM to keep the narrative ball rolling in a relatively agrarian uh, place, or, you know, uh, it's cool to start. The heroes out in the back end of nowhere, but eventually they're going to have to, uh, you're going to want to move them to somewhere where there's lots of other people to talk to and steal from and negotiate with and have affairs with and so on.
1: And if you're curious, back around uh, the turn of the century, maybe the late 90s, I did uh, a series of articles for Dragon Magazine called Cities of the Ages, in which I took historical cities and made them DD play spaces, and I did Novgorod and London and Prague and Edo and lots of interesting stuff like that. So feel free to look in. You'll basically get the idea of what I'm on about. And again, what you're looking for is criminality and magic, which is pretty easy to find most places.
0: Uh, Well, that sounds like a conclusive note if ever I heard one. So let's uh, uh, sneak on out of uh, this hut and see what other hut and or segment might lie on the other side.
1: They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrain Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet. From gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Belle Epoque Paris,
0: where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked
1: demimonde investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The Wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath,
0: where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to
1: defeat. This is Normal Now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe, where physical injuries
0: and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points.
1: They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions.
0: Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found-object player-facing guide to 1890s
1: Paris. And the Missing and the Lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality.
0: Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before, it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrain Press store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or the Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pellgrainpress.com slash shop. It's time to grab the old corkboard, add some more red threads connected by pushpins that uh, create an even more complicated org chart of sinister forces, uh, because we have once more backed into that, sadly salient of corners, the conspiracy corner. And this time around, beloved Patreon backer, Stephen Roman, uh, wants to know what the best recent books and or other media, documentaries and so forth, are that regard conspiracies, cover-ups, and secret societies. Uh, So, uh, Ken, uh, you've had a chance to go and survey your shelves. Uh, What would you recommend to someone uh, building a bookshelf of uh, relatively recent conspiracy books?
1: Um, I was struck as I went and did my surveying. First, by the fact that my shelves need a good uh, seeing, too. There are piles of books all over the floor. It's very difficult to survey them now. Um, But the other thing is that I'm beginning to suspect a conspiracy theory is a lot like uh, pop music, that you're really into the stuff you got into when you were a teenager. And then the modern stuff is just noise. So I see from a distance, uh, all the fun, the QAnon kids are having. And by fun, I mean, uh, malicious mayhem. And I am not particularly interested in that. And there's a, a big name guy named Isaac Weishaupt, which you would think would be a, a sort of a cool thing. And he's got uh, some books, and he's got a podcast, and he's and he's the big wheezily D. But I just, you know, it, it's all sort of you know been there, done that. This was why the yes, the, the, these
0: the, days the source material for
1: the world of conspiracies is the Washington Post, right? <laughs> the yeah. New right. York Times, uh huh. And it, and 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 the other thing is that the internet, I think, has. Uh, and and also to a lesser extent, the ability to get your yayas out on on bulletin boards and social media and whatnot has, I think, sort of drained a little bit of the publishing swamp. Uh, there, it, it used to be that you could count on just about every. You know, every few years, someone would come out with something new and exciting and everyone would have to rush to respond to it. But now, unless something new and exciting happens, like, you know, I don't know, a game show host getting elected president, people are still going back and they're and they're playing all the old tunes. It's like, you know, Nirvana is still one of the most important bands in music, despite being, you know. 30 years old by now, uh, you know, Perry Como, basically. So the 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 new stuff, I think, is either being done out on the internet and out of the, the eyes of publishers.
0: And often in, in real time. So when mm-hmm. there's an air crash, you, you don't have to wait for someone five years later to come to up a with some weird it. theory. It's like the, before even the full news report is out, the conspiracy mm-hmm. is all over uh, social media.
1: And to some extent, even the stuff that I was reading back in the day was itself mining a lot of old models i mean i think holy blood holy grail may have been one of the first genuine breakthroughs if that's the word i want in conspiracy theory mongering in in breaks. In Uh, breaks outbreaks outbreaks whatever you want to call it but it was it was the it was the nirvana of its era i guess and um which was basically the era of nirvana really and that sort of explosion of Christ mysteries blew out and, and reshaped things, but there hasn't really been, I think anything as, as uh genre redefining as that, as that sound. So when I'm listing these things, I, and I tried to keep it to stuff that's, you know, published this last decade, at least uh, that's very hard. I, I kept looking at things and seeing, Oh, it was published in the two thousands. Um, and I'm still going to be listing stuff published in the two thousands. Cause that's what I'm doing. But uh, this is all by the way of a prelude to say, Recent is not necessarily going to be better, and that if there's a recent topic you're curious about, you can probably do a deep dive on the internet and get as disgusted with the human condition as you want.
0: Uh, but given that, uh, but the given first that, title on your list is John E. Lewis, The Mammoth Book of Cover-Ups.
1: And this is uh, where I began with conspiracy theories, is uh, with, uh, the, well, basically with the novel uh, Illuminatus, but with, in you know, that sort of space. And back in the day, you had your your communist conspiracies— Uh, your, uh, none dare call it treason type stuff. And you had your JFK conspiracies and that was mostly it. There was the Mason, uh, paranoia had all died down, but we were going to get to revive that. And so we had people riffing on those. Those were like the OG grandmaster flash conspiracy stuff and but every now and again someone would do a compendium of conspiracies and um uh robert anton wilson did one and 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 these compendia i think again if you have decided for whatever reason you don't want to wikipedia things or you'd like to uh do your browsing in paper form um they're still pretty good and the mammoth Uh, pub, the, the, there's a bunch of mammoth books. There's a mammoth book of Jack the Ripper and a mammoth book of King Arthur and a mammoth book of this mammoth book of that. So the mammoth line, I think maintains a certain fast food quality that it's not going to make, you know, it's not awful. It's not elevating, but it will give you what you want. A compendium. Actually, the mammoth book of King Arthur is kind of good, but the, and the mammoth book of Jack the Ripper is quite frankly inspired because it is insane. So the mammoth book line in general is pretty good. So, uh, I, that's why I selected the mammoth book of cover ups. It's not anything great. It's not anything spectacular, but it's a bunch of things you might not have heard of. It goes beyond the 20th century, which is a, a, a nice, uh, a shift. It's got, I don't know, something like a hundred, 150 conspiracy theories all jammed up into it. And, and that's pretty good. And, and, um, again, you'll get books that are like, You know, the skeptics guide to conspiracies. But the trouble with being a skeptics guide is often they're just fun ruiners and they don't tell you what the cool conspiracy is that they're skepticing. And B for skeptics, they often have crazy blind spots that are somehow more annoying. Skeptics when you read them. have crazy
0: blind spots.
1: Like, what? Yeah, go figure. And and you read. I learn something in, new on this podcast every single week. You should. We should make that a shirt. Yeah, um,
0: which is like a picture of James <laughs> Randi with a
1: fork <laughs> <Right>. in his <laughs> eye or something. Hey, um, uh, James Randi was all right, I guess. But the, but the, but the thing is, it it uh, it winds up sort of. There there is no conspiracy version of Jocelyn Godwin, for example. The the person who uh, is capable of, of diving deep into the weirdness, not believing it, but believing in the numinous possibility of weirdness, um, he is great for magic. Um, and some magics have cons- uh, secret societies, so Jocelyn Godwin is is a is, a, is an A list guy. But the closest to that in conspiracy theories is a guy named Rick Nick Redfern, and he is sort of a Journalist is too strong a word. I think he began actually as a journalist but rapidly fell off the edge of the world. But he still has the sort of the 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 patterns, right? The the the, the glands and nerves in his body haven't completely deliquesced. So when he writes something, he's at least giving you the who, what, where, why. The, sort of the basic stuff. So, uh, the, the other compendium that I picked was Secret Societies, The Complete Guide to Histories, Rites, and Rituals by Nick Redfern. And Nick Redfern has a lot of these sort of compendium books because once you write one of them, the publishers go back to you. There's a guy named John Michael Greer, who's sort of a scholar of, of magical societies and is another version of that, I think, element went back to him and he did an encyclopedia of secret societies. It's perfectly good um, for what it is. And so, you find one of these uh figures and You can follow them through their career, and they will wind up writing something about everything that you care about because that's how these publishers work. I do not include Brad Steiger in that category. He was a guy who is well past his sell-by date, and his uh, compendia and encyclopedias are slovenly at best. So erase brad steiger from your from your notebook nick redfern again is is not he's no jocelyn godwin but he's but he's pretty good
0: um so another name
1: you have in your notebook is annie jacobson yeah this is where i'm saying rather than list specific titles um i would say follow authors and annie jacobson legitimately won the pulitzer prize for something um it hardly matters now because she is be clowning herself with every book that she writes afterward but Again, those journalistic habits are strong because uh, she goes in and she writes a book about Area 51, in which her theory is that uh, they were tiny Mongolian midgets sent by Stalin to terrify us. <laughs> that that's what the Roswell saucer was. I'm I make this not up.
0: Well, it's important to have the veil out be be dumber than the
1: actual (laughs) mystery that the actual thing yeah and so she has um uh, area 51 she has phenomena which is about uh the government uh stargate conspiracies and things like that um government psychic programs she has uh, a book about operation paperclip which was a genuine conspiracy but by now having swallowed that ridiculous roswell nonsense whole who knows what her paperclip book is i own it obviously but it's you know you you can't trust it um, but it is a, a, a she is a investigative journalist in habit if no longer in thought and her books are generally very good uh, roundups of whatever the topic is that then take a wild turn because she has decided she has to explain things um and so there's uh there's some good stuff uh that and and she also she likes spies and secret uh, wars and things like that. I don't know that she likes them, but she likes them as a topic. And so I I find her stuff very congenial in that way.
0: Right. And that's Jacobson with an E N on the end for those of you you typing into
1: Amazon. Uh, Your next name is Peter Lavenda. And right now, Daniel Harms is standing up and throwing things at the speaker because (laughs) he considers Peter. (laughs) It's his own speaker. Let him throw whatever he wants. Exactly. He considers uh, Peter Lavenda, nothing better than a Han man and a and a skulking impostor and bad news all the way around and I'm not going to say that he's not there is some degree of of uh, argument in the occult community over who was the Simon that wrote the famous Simon Necronomicon and most people who are not Peter Lavenda say. It was probably Peter Lavenda. And Peter Lavenda's like, oh, no, it was a mysterious magician named Simon, <laughs> who he's from Canada. You I wouldn't know have him. gone to the trouble of calling myself Simon. No, oh, don't. Oh, why? Why would I do that? Um, but he continues to deny it, God bless him, and this angers people who want their Necronomicons nailed down, and people who don't think you should be allowed to engage in bald-faced imposture. Right.
0: Well, if there's a book that you even suspect of being the ne- Necronomicon, nail it down, because it'll move around on you, especially if it's the Evil Dead version.
1: And, and this is sort of where I'm going to with, with uh, the modern era, because as I say... Uh, the, all the great music has been laid down. Now we're in the era of, of, uh, hip hop. We're in the era of mashup and and mixing. And Peter LaVenda does a great mix. Um, his, the book that sort of made his bones was unholy Alliance, which was about occult Nazis and was surprisingly well-researched. Speaking as someone who has done (laughs) that research, um, it's actually maybe better than the one that Yale university press did, which is a terrifying thought. Um, but he has a trilogy called the Sinister Forces trilogy that came out in 2005, 2006. And this is an attempt to do a summa of the dark, magical conspiracy behind the 20th century. And, uh, he has continued to remain Lovecraft woke. Um, but he also has uh, books about the survival of Hitler and alchemy and tantra and all manner of other fun things. And so, um, I'm a, I'm a fan. Of Peter Lavenda's writing. Again, he is, he's, he's not quite as good as Jocelyn Godwin because Jocelyn Godwin is, uh, reputationally, I think, beyond reproach. And we've discussed Peter Lavenda, but he does do some research on his own. He does dig stuff up. He does, and, and his, uh, he is one of the great DJs, I guess, of conspiracy theory. The Sinister Forces is, is just a great thing to dive into and get And get uh, pulled into it's very it's like dark unfunny illuminatus um uh in the way that it sort of takes all of these threads and and weaves them into this uh weird quasi uh uh uh, horrific chronicle It's, it's sort of the secret text underlying you know all bad shows about the fbi i guess probably um it's 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 very good uh in that way and his new stuff again is is uh if you if you like the topic you do if you don't you don't but i find that um that his stuff is is usually worth picking up.
0: And your uh, final name to recommend is Joseph P. Farrell.
1: And again, recommend is such a strong word. Mention. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And again, Joseph P. Farrell is a guy who is a, a believer, a a confirmed believer, but he's more importantly for our work. He is one of the great, one of the great uh, hip hoppers, mixers in the, in the, in the field. Um, He, I think his original background was a, as as a uh, theology, and now, of course, as a theologian, he is uh, concerned mostly with aeronautical research and secret Nazi time travel and stuff like that. And so he has uh, he's one of the people that has brought it in from ancient times. He's one of the guys who will take your Nazi UFOs and your secret not NASA conspiracy to kill JFK and all your other stuff and tie it back to the uh, secret masons who built the pyramids and the cosmic aliens and all kinds of other stuff. He's even more of a unified theory guy than Lavenda. And he he has a admirable habit in his books of sort of giving you in bite-sized chunks, the crazy theory of that chapter. And he says, this is my crazy theory. And here's what I'm going to use to support it. And here's what we've learned. And now we've taken this crazy theory and we can move into the next crazy theory. It's very, you know, it's it. if Thomas Aquinas were a crazy person obsessed with UFO Nazis, he would be Joseph P. Farrell. And I can give no one any higher uh, recommendation than that, I think. But the the way that he presents the and again, data is a, a loaded term. <laughs> the, the material amongst which data lie, um, <laughs> and I do mean lie is, is, is admirable in that way. Um, there are a lot of frickin' swastikas on the covers of his books. So if that is a problem for you, you may want to buy Joseph P. Farrell books used just to make double sure. I don't believe that he is a Nazi, but he is super interested in Nazis. So take that with the grain of salt that you will. Right. And,
0: and I think data. The term that you're looking for, Ken, is stuff. Stuff, yeah. Like the kind of stuff uh, that we uh, talk about on, on this very podcast. In fact, I think there might even be another bit of stuff waiting for us on the other side of this exciting commercial message.
1: The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled...
0: and six-guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say
1: slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astvigeln on drive through. Conspire to keep this podcast alive alongside such beloved Patreon backers as... MKB David Quick Eben Lindsay Ethan Cordray
0: and Garrett Fitzgerald
1: We've reached the door that we normally walk up the, uh, twisted, uh, uh, cobwebby stairs to the portrait of Madame Blavatsky entering an Edwardian parlor. And when we get to the Edwardian parlor, there's a sign on the, on the, on the door of the Edwardian parlor that says, gone for krillers, be back in 20. We don't have 20 minutes. This is important. We go back downstairs over next door into the chrome and steel, uh, bookcase lined, uh, Danish designed, lounge area of the other consulting occultist, the one who just came back from France, because we are consulting about a couple of occultists who were in France, but were not French, Moina and Samuel Mathers, and Samuel Mathers is best known as McGregor Mathers, and Moina Mathers is, to me at least, best known as Moina Bergson, because her brother was philosopher Henri Bergson, and how Robin did a nice girl... Get in a place like that.
0: So this is sort of the, the power couple of the uh, Parisian occult. And they uh, began as the power couple of the Victorian occult. And uh, and uh, they received a mysterious psychic message telling them to move to a funner city.
1: <laughs> and, of course,
0: we're talking about them uh, at this point because they are uh, supporting players in the Yellow King role-playing games first of its four uh, settings, or sequences as I call them, uh, the uh, Paris 1895 setting. And so Mathers is the uh, founder of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, uh, which we have uh, talked about uh, previously, but uh, uh, there's no hyperlinks in a podcast. So Ken, why don't you uh, give people the quick catch-up on uh, what the uh, Golden Dawn was?
1: Uh, The Golden Dawn was basically... A attempt by people who are not satisfied with the amount of uh, nonsense in Freemasonry to LARP being magicians. And uh, they did so by dint of a secret charter that was passed down by hidden masters and also by dint of McGregor Mathers doing a great deal of research in the British Museum uh stumbling over Agrippa some of the other uh medieval uh and uh early modern magician authors and creating a generalized uh, a, a generalized model for western ceremonial magic and uh with lots of bright colors and steps and all the ritual that uh, uh middle class britons craved and uh he developed that and sure enough if you say confidently enough you can do magic and hidden masters gave it to you people will show up and in this case, some very impressive people such as William Butler Yeats, Arthur Mackin and of course, our old buddy, Alistair Crowley. Uh, and, Part of the reason that everyone moved to Paris was maybe so that Aleister Crowley would stay in London and not pester them. Um, <laughs> and that was that that was uh, part of the of the drama going on. Um, I don't think it's going on. I, it, it's, it, it happens a little bit later, right, in, in the Golden Dawn's history than 1895.
0: Yeah. Crowley is 20 years old in 1895. Right. He doesn't actually show up in Paris until
1: 1900. Mm-hmm, where he ruins everything.
0: But you're allowed to make <laughs> things up in role playing. Uh, so you can have him uh show up if you if you want um and just not officially be there or you can ignore that fact you you can be a fact ignorer but the deal with the uh, golden the dawn of course is that once you create a hierarchy and uh, we know that everybody who's creating these occult hierarchies uh, all have claim to a different group of secretly powerful voices who only they can channel. But once you set up an organization, especially in England, uh, other people want to climb the ladders of that organization and push you out. And in fact, uh Mathers is struggling to remain the head honcho of the London operation from Paris, as one would. Uh, because of course his absence has, has left a spot for everybody. But uh basically the way uh, they figure into the Pregian occult scene is that they're uh they're the fun couple. They're uh first of all, uh, Golden Dawn is funner than Martinism because uh you're uh drawing on different more romantic traditions of magic than on getting magic from God. And uh, at least for uh you know English speaking characters, they run a salon. So if uh Josephine Peladon is sort of the uh, kind of a public performance uh, face of the occult scene, and uh, Papoose is kind of the master of, of publishing and uh, the sort of inner sanctum. This salon that the Mathers' run from their uh, villa in the suburb of Otoy are the social uh, center, and they're uh, where the English-speaking uh, characters in the game can go and meet other people who's, who speak English and hang out. Um, Mathers himself is surprisingly uh, kind of uh, a drab and, and quiet uh, figure for uh, someone who's uh, uh, deciding to do ceremonial magic and, and run a LARP, although... Uh, I think we all can uh, think of people who are socially retiring until they put on a funny hat in a LARP. So that, that's kind of mm-hmm. him. But his younger wife, at this point, he's 41, and um, Moina is 30, and she is the life of every event. She's um, outgoing where he is uh, retiring, and uh, she's sort of the, the master of theatrics and ceremony. And uh, at about this time, uh, first of all, she is uh, unlike, also unlike the French uh, who are kind of aligned with conservative circles, although actual conservative people want little to do with them. Um, Moina is a feminist and uh, she carries on uh, like a sort of a walking, talking pre-Raphaelite painting. So she's very vivacious and exciting and and progressive in her uh, views. And it's at about this time that they kind of switch up the theatrics of the Golden Dawn. I guess it's getting a little tired. And so they decide to go into uh, ISIS worship, uh, because what's more fun than dressing up like uh, Egyptian gods and parading around? So that's a, a transition that's happening uh, during uh, uh, this period as well. So um, they can be the ones who make the. This is about scene. when her husband
1: is playing chess with gods he would um uh, set up uh, a chess board and say that announced that he was going to play chess with a god and get uh, uh knowledge from it if, if uh, from the god if he if he won and um uh, he would take the white and he would sort of sit across from an empty chair and uh he would wait for the god to signal their move and then he would move the piece for them and that was how he would play chess with the gods and if it just looked like something that was fun to watch for 10 minutes, and then you went off to see what Moina was up to? Yep, that was the Golden Dawn right there.
0: Or, of course, if the Yellow King is out around, it could be uh, the, the figure in the pallid mask is uh, moving the chess pieces. Um, you might also be missing a step if you didn't give the players a chance to sneak in and move the pieces on the board when uh, Mathers isn't, uh, Mm -hmm. isn't looking, I'm sure he'd be very disappointed if he starts losing a game with himself and doesn't get any
1: knowledge. Right. Yeah. The, the, um, uh, the possibility of, of playing chess as the God, uh, against uh, McGregor Mathers can't possibly backfire at all. I think that's a great (laughs) idea. You, you knock yourselves (laughs) out kids.
0: Um, so where do they, uh, this is 1895 Mathers. Uh, he, uh, Lives till 1918, so he dies at the end of World War One. Uh, and uh, Moina, uh, she's ten years older than him, and she dies ten years later in 1928. Uh, where do they eventually wind up?
1: I think that uh, Mathers goes back to to London, doesn't he? Uh, no, he died. He died in Paris. So they they wind up in a different magical order because the Golden Dawn basically becomes too much of a of a cat fight. Um, he starts the. Um, uh, Alpha and Omega, and uh, Moina, I believe, continues with the Alpha and Omega after her husband dies, and uh, then she moves that to London. That's what happened. Um, and so, the uh, that's uh, basically a straight-up Rosicrucian order, uh, and, and it's not as much uh, fun uh, behavior as as the Golden Dawn was, I guess, or the Isis-Urania temple um, which is another yes. fun thing. See,
0: previous discussion of the Rosicrucians, the most boring occultists. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, her uh, right. making it to 1928 means that uh, she's uh, still around in the classic Call of Cthulhu era, if not the Trail of Cthulhu era. Uh, so you can meet up with mm-hmm. her in later days after uh, Samuel has uh, has passed away and, uh, and engage with her uh, there. And her reason for uh, giving up on uh, ISIS worship And going to nice, safe Rosicrucianism, which again, as we've covered before, is also like the Martinists, is a a cult version of Christianity, may well be uh, that uh, she encountered uh, Nidocris or Nerolathotep or something like that and uh, realized that that was dangerous territory and is trying to uh, ward herself against them. And and, uh, if some nice, fresh-faced 20s uh, adventurers show up uh, to ask for information, she might well throw them in the path. Uh, so that uh, she herself is is not devoured. So uh, there's uh, that arc that she undergoes uh, from the uh, exciting romantic uh, occult to the Egyptomania occult, and then back into Rosicrucianism is one that you could uh, uh, maybe follow over a series of of campaigns, possibly switching games along the way.
1: Right. The uh, other thing that you can get up to when you're in Paris, there's a couple of times that uh that uh, there's sort of an inflection point uh, we talked about Crowley another one is when the Mather's funds get cut off because and here's something kids when you're lead- leading a cult when you're leading an occult group never expel the millionaire i cannot stress this enough <laughs> uh that's that 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 shows they're sincere yeah. because well it does But also, (laughs) so I'm just saying, do what you got to do, make whatever deal you got to make with the secret chiefs, but don't throw out the millionaire because they expelled uh, Annie Horniman, who was the uh, wealthy woman who basically funded the whole operation in 1895. And guess what? Uh, She says, well, then guess who's not paying for Golden Dawn LARP anymore? Annie Horniman. So they had to start finding funds in, uh, starting in 1896. So if you are in 1895, maybe you hear rumblings of this and maybe the Matherses do find mysterious money from somewhere, possibly from, oh, I don't know, a weird little earless dwarf from America who sends the money because he has an interest in funding strange magical researches and chess with invisible unseen entities. Who can say? So there's all manner of possibilities roiling around there. Then if you get through that in 1914, uh, the Matherses, um turned their house into a recruitment center to uh to process American volunteers for the war and that let me tell you is going to be a magnificent opportunity because by now they're Rosicrucians. They're very boring. They're they're straightforward. Oh, our old ceremonial magic is in the past. Suddenly you get a bunch of Americans who show up eager to fight in world war one. Oh, and also they're magicians. And that is going to be just fun happening when, so that's your sequel that can happen or your prequel that can happen between Moina in Cthulhu era and the Matherses in Carcosa era, and so you have a fun possibility during the war uh and there's lots of um uh they both thought that there was a magic going on in the war that there were the magical forces behind the war, so you can do as much as you want with occult World War One and use the Matherses again as your sort of Um, unreliable patrons, I guess. They're reliably patron, they're just unreliable humans.
0: Well, uh, speaking of uh, war, we have some wars to talk about, specifically uh, wars in the stars. So, uh, let's uh, uh, lap up uh, this exciting uh, commercial, possibly also Yellow King themed, and uh, uh, take our seats. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow. Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book has inspired
1: millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin
0: pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tyne sets the
1: stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated king in yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. The whirr of the projector, the smell of the delicious popcorn, the whatever that is on the ground between the seats, tell us that we are once more in the center row in the middle of the cinema hut. And in the cinema hut, as we traditionally do, we are taking an opportunity to take an opportunity to to watch and re- and respond to a film that by now everyone has seen and if you haven't seen it that's why it's at the end of the segment uh so you can hit pause now and go on with your lives and not be spoiled or possibly listen to it secure in the knowledge that the film can't be spoiled because it was pre-spoiled by Disney it's the rise of skywalker robin uh we talked about uh uh last jedi and we had i think a, a fairly productive conversation because while we both agreed the movie was flawed we placed its flaws in somewhat different areas. I don't believe I liked it as well as you did, or you were nicer to it than I was. And uh, now we're a, we're in a movie where I think we're pretty much speaking as one. Do we have differences about The Rise of Skywalker, Robin?
0: Um, I, I think we don't. So uh, our duty here is not to uh, dispute with one another. Right. Uh, let's cut to the chase. We both thought it was kind of flat. Yeah. Um, And this is also not, I think, a particularly... Uh, Rare opinion, and so I guess no. our job here is to sort of uh, analyze uh, why it was kind of a letdown, why it's not terrible uh, it certainly d- does not achieve the nadir of uh, uh, some of the uh, the middle ones, yeah, and the flatness is sort of there right from the beginning, so uh, I guess it's time to dig in and try and figure out why uh, it's usually a mugs game to look at what happened behind the scenes and impute one decision or another, but in this case, uh, we sort of do know that the words troubled production history uh, come into play here. Uh, it's uh, well known, first of all, that it was assigned to another director and then they brought back JJ Abrams, uh, who uh, I think the part of this is just sort of his zest for wrapping up the series. That his The Force Awakens is like, Hey, I get to make a Star Wars movie. And the Rise of Skywalker is, Oh, I got to make a Star Wars movie. But, most obviously, the problem with this was that the actor who was supposed to be kind of the emotional centerpiece of this uh, film died, and it turned out you can't yeah. make a computer Carrie Fisher. So uh, I think it's uh, you know unless you have some sort of weird agenda, I think it's it's odd to be hostile toward it.
1: I mean, in in fairness, by the time Chris Terrio began writing the script, they already knew that. So. Uh, Maybe think of a second emotional center. I don't know. I'm not the boss of you,
0: right? They, they foolishly thought they could replace her with CGI.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think you can plausibly argue that uh, there was anything in terms of a uh, of a completion because they left even J.J. Abrams's original story beats unbeaten. They they didn't just reject Ryan Johnson and all of his works. They rejected about a third of uh, Force Awakens by the end of the uh, of the process. Uh, I think it was worse than flat. I don't, I, th- I do think that the, the prequel trilogy still beats it, but you know, it, it's, it's a harder job of beating it than you'd think. And, uh, I think that the, um, the things that went wrong, do not necessarily end with Disney interference with the vanishing of Colin Trevorrow, who was probably going to be a disaster of his own sort, or the general fecklessness of J.J. Abrams and his inability to end things. Right. Um, I think that we have a broader problem, uh, with the Star Wars universe, which is nobody knew what this trilogy was supposed to accomplish at the beginning. Nobody plotted it out. There was not a ongoing arc on, on a desk anywhere. It was just sort of, you know, one hesitates to say this about a multi-billion-dollar project, but it was basically an exquisite corpse. And part of the point of an exquisite corpse is you don't get to spend half of the of the of the third corpse going back and uh, and and changing the second corpse. You just have to sort of grit your teeth and move on. And uh, they did not do that. Or when they did it, they did it uh, backwards and in heels, but not in heels. Just backwards. yeah. So there's
0: definitely the feeling that it's like when someone takes over a com- a superhero comic and jettisons everything that the previous writer was doing. You certainly get that feeling. Uh, And not requiring each director slash writer to uh, follow a plotted out arc, I think in retrospect does not behoove them well at all. Uh, But I think we need to also look at uh, the other structural uh, issues of, uh, because it could have worked, why didn't it? What did they do that didn't work? And so uh, a a lot of the second or the third movie, Uh, Like the second one is surprisingly like TV writing in that there's a bunch of different episodes happening and it goes sideways and it it doesn't have uh, momentum. And the thing like the this would not be a franchise were it not for the original film, Star Wars. (laughs) which is called Star Wars. That's the name of that film. And uh, uh-huh. it is actually yeah. a marvel of momentum and moving through a uh, a story. And uh, it's got a complex structure, but it keeps going and it's got a through line that it adheres to. Um, and I sort of beginning to think that the place that the Star Wars movies go fatally wrong in terms of establishing a template that then wrecks everything else later when other people try to follow it, including Lucas himself is Luke going off to have a training experience with Yoda. And that kills the momentum of that movie. It breaks up the team. uh, But the Yoda thing is cool enough that you don't care. And they get back together. And with that big digression, okay, that's fine. But it stops being an adventure movie for a while and breaks up the team. And boy, is that ever in effect here. Is that uh, the final uh, film in this series seems to go, well, you know what? All those other characters, the team... They don't matter. This is really just a story about uh, Ray and Kylo, and uh, I think many of his. <laughs> Which us given like that it's th-
1: the only part of the of the astrology that works, it might as well be <laughs> right. But it works because they don't choose to make it work. Right? Apparently, right. the
0: the Trevorrow script was a team on a mission thing, and maybe did have a, a momentum and a through line, and they weren't going off to this other planet to get this thing to get that other thing. This has what I call a treasure hunt plotting in that there's all these, they have to go to X to do Y and Y to do X. But really that's just a way to connect up the index cards for cool scenes that they've thought of that don't further the, uh, the the momentum of the narrative and the, the way to, you know, to have a film that is satisfying in that way is to have a spine and then add your cool things on top of that, rather than start off with your list of cool things and then try to, Uh, jam them clumsily altogether so there's just uh all sorts of things uh uh, happening like the going off to the carrie russell planet for no real uh, reason that had to be there why is this character in there what is the point of that it's uh it's it's TV writing where except there's not another TV episode where you can then pay off the Carrie Russell character
1: right and grotesque wastes of of actors is I guess has been a, a marker of, of this trilogy especially um although the prequel wastes a lot of actors as well Christopher Lee popping instantly to mind uh and and Carrie uh, Russell is uh barely in it Kelly Marie Tran is barely in it um she has what 45 seconds of screen time or something awful after we are being shes really by, suffered uh, from the,
0: the CGI Carry Fisher not
1: working because her her scenes were supposed to be with her. Right. Well, again, this is the sort of thing that perhaps you could have told in dailies and fixed and given her literally anything to do. (laughs) <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm not a director, but I, but, but I at least have seen enough good movies to know that that wasn't one. And if I were a director, right. perhaps well, I the thing have... is,
0: once you commit to that, you've got a release date. So yeah. you can't go back and fix a huge structure. Except problem, they did. And... They,
1: they, they went back and they changed huge elements of the plot, including the Palpatine reveal that was put in almost at the last minute not the fact that he's alive but the fact that he's um uh raised uh, father uh, or grandfather whatever nonsense it is and by the way who doesn't want a a, a sequel about palpatine's disappointing kids who just wander the universe uh <laughs> not particularly doing anything and every so often he calls them he's like why Why won't you visit me on my birthday? And they're like, oh, no, Dad, I'm sorry. <laughs> I lost track of time. What with this exciting insurance uh, situation I've been working on or whatever. Well,
0: he- here's another general principle uh, that that brings up, though, is uh, when you're doing a surprise reveal don't have the surprise be more disappointing than the thing that it turns out not to be. Yeah, And uh, (laughs) just as, you know, no one wanted Raven Boy to be king at at the end of uh, Game of Thrones. Nobody was hoping for that to happen. Nobody was hoping for uh, her to turn out to be uh, of the Palpatine line. Uh, So that screws up both, as you suggested, what gets set up in the first one, which is that the Skywalkers are kind of the House of Atreus. But that would then require a critique of the Jedi that the... Uh, series continually flirts with, but then has to skate back from at maximum speed. Uh, do toy sales, I guess, or yeah. you know, the Ryan Johnson version is that you know she's uh, the every person who uh, who breaks the hold of the House of Atreus on the on the fate of the universe. But it's like, well, what does her being Palpatine's kid even mean? So not only do we not want that to be a thing the consequences and uh um, mythological resonance of that are also uh not in place.
1: Right. Yeah, it's the the whole movie uh which again and you know you're you're saying well they had a release date they absolutely did they had a release date they had a theme park that they had to open lots of other things but they still had almost a year to make this movie non terrible and it just it, it would not have seemed super hard to do that, again, if they had had any kind of direction of the script. And that's the problem. Chris Terrio is, what can I say, not a great writer. J.J. Abrams apparently has no story sense. I think that we are beginning to notice that. He's a guy who has a lot of cool scene sense and not a lot of, and then what happened? Powering up, and no one seemed to in uh to to want to crack the whip at Disney, except perhaps to crack the whip, as you say, against interesting choices. Because no, 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 we have to sell Jedi robes to twelve-year-olds. We can't imply that there's anything wrong with this order of quasi-celibate sword fighters. How could that possibly go wrong? So the 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 the, the box that they're in is granted not a great box, but I, I I think even the Trevoro script, as you say, at least recognized you had to tell a story in the two and a half hours. That's the other thing. They had two and a half damn hours to tell this story, and it's still not done. It's still not complete. And it's still, as you say, a bunch of TV episodes jammed in haphazardly, none of which accomplish anything.
0: And, And weirdly, as I understand it, I haven't seen it yet. There's a good TV series set in Star Wars Universe, so we've had this weird inversion where they... Yes,
1: there is. Someone
0: knows how to make Star Wars TV shows, they just don't know how to make Star Wars movies. And one of the problems that goes back all the way to the original trilogy is uh, no one, including George Lucas, has ever come up with a way to end a Star Wars movie that isn't blowing up the Death Star again. This time, they put a whole lot of Death right. star guns on a whole lot of destroyers and then you have
1: to blow up all those destroyers with the dust
0: it's still the same ending it's the same ending yet again
1: yeah I mean it's the ending with just a uh, just a hint of Jedi where they have to um uh you know stop the dingus
0: yeah instead of the celebration at the end I guess you know there yeah there, there is sort of a celebration at the end but the the uh, you know, it doesn't end in the big re- resonant high note, but this bummer note where she goes back to Tatooine for no reason and buries the the lightsabers, which, again, this story wants to be about how the Skywalkers are terrible <laughs> and yeah. and need to be ended. And it's sort of there, except they are the, the, the you know, that scene is at war with itself with the. With the ghosts of, of uh, Luke and Leia smiling over this gesture
1: for bearing the light, what is even going on? And again, that that scene was was added at the at the last minute. The the shots of her against the Tatooine sons are remakes of shots of her on the desert planet of Pisana. You you can go back and you can look at the actual footage and you say. This was cobbled together at literally the last minute by no one who cared um and that's the real crime is that a lot of people cared about Star Wars. I have been cured of that thank God but I am you know I I, I know that there are tens of millions hundreds of millions of people for whom this was super super important and for it to be just hacked out like it was you know uh the, the ending of of alias or lost or something is kind of a slap in the face to those people I mean it's not they didn't ruin their childhood no they ruined. and two and a half hours of their time. And that's a big enough crime for God's sake. You know, this is just, it's just awful. And the treasure hunt thing that you mentioned isn't paid off because it turns out, Oh, somehow everyone else can get to the treasure without going through the nonsensical hunt. They can, you know, just show up. Uh, Also, there were a hundred thousand first order guys, manning all those Star Destroyers somehow. And there was a big, you know, audience full of, um, uh, of, 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 of Sith Cornhusker fans shouting and, and screaming, uh, for Palpatine. Even the challengey part, the Indiana Jones bit in the middle is unpaid off. It's as, as Indy and the Nazis had gotten to the Ark and found like a souvenir center there, right? I mean, it's just nonsense. It, it, it subverts its, even the bits of itself that might work.
0: Yeah. It's, it's not just a treasure hunt. It's a giant delaying tactic. It's all of that action is to prevent the thing that has to happen from happening. And as GMs, we know not to do that, right? It's like, don't, don't have a whole thing about how you can't get to the dungeon. If there's something fun that's going to happen, have that fun thing happen and develop that and complicate that. It's like, you know, start with them knowing where Palpatine is and then, and then go from there. It's like, you know, that in the original, they don't spend a whole middle act looking for the Death Star. They... They find the Death Star, and then things happen on the Death Star. Well, at this point, uh, I, I think that uh, our only real problem here, Ken, that we're really disagreeing on is sorting in what order the different problems uh, resulted in uh, a, a disappointing <laughs> result. But I think the the sort of takeaways that you can take of it as people who write pulp is to get to the thing, don't have delaying tactics in the middle of the thing, don't have a bunch of, knit a bunch of meaningless side task together and know what you're saying yeah know what your story is saying and decide whether you want to say that or not and it's disappointing for all of those reasons and more
1: i mean the the force awakens uh, to the extent it was about anything was about isn't star wars great and yes star wars is great but that's what when you have your main characters who are united in their belief that star wars is great kind of makes it hard to carry a through line and that's why the Ray Kylo was was really the only story that happened. And, of course, they managed to um, uh, almost screw that up as well. So, good for you, everybody involved. Nice job. But, you know, Adam Driver probably got to buy a really nice house. So, I guess we're all happy. Um, And, and he is he, he makes a meal He's out of, so out of good. not very He's much. He's so good in this movie. And, and please, if you have not gone and seen him in literally anything else, do so. This is like... You know, this is like uh, Sir Alec Guinness in Star Wars, who is great in Star Wars. But go see Bridge on the River Kwai. Go see any of the great Alec Guinness parts and be amazed at how that much fit into Obi-Wan Kenobi. Similarly, see any Adam Driver part, be amazed at how much uh he can fit into Kylo Ren. It's, it's such a triumph. Uh, He's such a great actor. Uh, That is I mean, that that's the real bonus right there is that uh, Adam Driver will never will never starve no matter what he does. Okay,
0: we found a positive note. So so let's get out on that positive note. And uh, we'll be back with another exciting podcast that uh, doesn't have a Death Star exploding at the end uh, next week. Stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors Atlas Games Pelgrane Press Ask Ark Dream Torque Tower and Pro Fantasy Software Music as always
1: is by James Semple Audio editing by Rob Borges Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at Patreon.com backslash CanAnRobin Join the
0: secret chiefs whose Patreon support keeps this podcast coming at you the less secret of whom include Jeff Cars, Jean-François Paradis Joe Latrell, Joshua Brumley and Morgan Ellis Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin Check out our hottest new design, Carcosa Fandango On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Hite. And he's at Robin D. Laws See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.